All right, it says we're live, so. All right, Book of Romans. I know, uh, I know today is quote-unquote Easter. Um, I, I know for most churches, it, it, it's, it's weird to me how churches do it. Most, and I'm not speaking of uh, churches that follow the uh, historical church calendar, I'm not, following, I'm not talking about liturgical churches. I'm talking just your average Protestant church. It's really weird. They, they throw out the entire church calendar, right? They don't care about Advent. They don't care about Lent. They don't care about Epiphany. They, they, they throw all of that out, right? And then all of a sudden, they, just, they all jump in for Easter, right? They may do something for Palm Sunday. Most of them do very little for quote-unquote Holy Week, right? Most have no Good Friday services, and then all of a sudden on Easter Sunday, it's Easter now. And then it becomes about everything other than really the resurrection of Christ. It just becomes about a celebration. So I just always like, if we don't follow, if we're not following the church calendar, it just feels weird that on Easter we just jump in and say, hey, it's, it's resurrection day. And not only that, it's just weird because what, what's the one strange thing about Easter related to other holidays? Yeah, it's not a fixed, uh, as using a, using a Catholic term, it's not a fixed feast day. It's a moving feast day that can go, that based on the spring equinox, right, yeah. That um, it can be in from like March 21st to somewhere. So it changes every year. So like this year we're like, hey, today Christ is risen. And then next year it's a completely different day. <laughs> Maybe a completely different month. So it just seems odd, but, but Christians will all, you know, jump into, onto it. So, I mean, so obviously, you know what, I'm not going to, we're not going to have a Easter sermon. If we were following the church calendar, then, then be, we're not, no, we don't do egg hunts here. Okay, no, we don't do that. Yeah we, yeah, we don't do that here. Okay, I still don't understand that. Okay, makes absolutely no sense to me, but okay. But yeah, church, if you think of all the things churches do, yeah, I, I think what happens is, if you think all the things churches do for quote-unquote Easter, and you think about how much of it really has nothing to do with the resurrection of Christ, you have to ask yourself, do Christians really want something about the resurrection of Christ, or they just want an activity? And many just want an activity. And, you know, there's plenty of places to give you the activity. So we, we don't do that. So if you're looking for that this morning, you're, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that. We're in Romans. That's where we're going to go, all right? And wh- where are we at in Romans? We're in Romans chapter 9, all right? We're in Romans chapter 9, okay? Romans chapter 9. And let's just start reading in verse 1 to remind you of where we have been. We haven't really done much in the text yet because, well, we have to do a lot of other work. But Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, right there, we just see Paul's, what what do we see in verse 1 through 3? What jumps out at us in verse 1 through 3? Paul's what? His concern, his love, his burden for whom? His brethren, according to the flesh, which is fellow Israelites, fellow Jews. He has this great burden and concern. We've mentioned that, right? And a lot of times that's where the sermons, well, immediately, this is how the sermons typically work. You read those three verses, and then what is the sermon about? 
I mean, come on, if you've listened, I mean, if y'all listen to sermons online, or if you've ever been to a church, what does the sermon become as soon as you preach Rome, or read Romans 9, 1 through 3? Say it. Evangelism. Do you have that same kind of passion and love for the lost? I'm not saying it's not a good application, but that's what the focus immediately becomes on. Okay, I understand, because within, within the world of Christianity, what people want is the sermon to be practical. They don't really care about being in-depth or theological in many cases. Okay, but I can understand. That's a good application. Then the very next verse says, Who are Israelites? All right. No, or, or you can say, uh, or, the, or the, the covenants or testaments is given to them. But clearly he's referring to Israel, yes? And what's been given to Israel? Let's go through them again. Adoption, glory, covenants, law, service of God, and the promises. All right? Who are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Next part. For they are not all Israel, which are Israel. Now, immediately when you get right there, we know where the problems begin to amount and all the, uh, begins to show up and we have all these issues, okay? So what does the question become right here in Romans 9? We've talked about this now for like a month, okay? Who is Israel? Right? So remember, when it comes to Israel, what are the options? What do people do within Christian history? What is, happens to Israel? Okay, let's go through this. Israel is who? Okay, well, we'll just go, some will say Israel is the nation of Israel. All right? Okay, and that those promises to the nation of Israel have not yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled literally. Right? Okay, right? That, that Israel is Israel. Promises go to Israel. They will get them. All right? Another will say... Israel's the church. Israel's done away with. We don't care about national Israel. They're irrelevant. And those, all the promises that go to Israel come to us. And all the curses go to the nation. All right? That's convenient. Right? Okay? Right? All right. That's done away with. Okay? All right? But those are the basic... And we can break it down a little bit more, but those are the basic thing. Is Israel still Israel? Do they get the promises? Or has Israel become the church and we get the promises? Right? So a lot of times people will start into discussions here at this point. What I decided to do is like, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's not have the fight here. Let's not even try to figure this out, right? Because everyone will just argue and argue and argue and argue. To me, the smartest thing to do is say, stop. Let's go back and do what? Look at all the promises. And by looking at all the promises, what do we hope to determine? Who was the promise to? Was the promise fulfilled? If the promise wasn't fulfilled to who the promise was given, either we've got to change who the promise was originally given to and then have it be fulfilled not in a literal way but in a spiritual way, or we have to say the promise was given to Israel and it has to be fulfilled in a literal way. You see why we've been doing this now week after week after week after week after week? Because a lot of people are like, just move on! Just move on! Yeah, move on until I get to that verse and you say, see, not all Israel's Israel! It can't be that simple. And when a lot of times you get into a discussion, people will immediately run to this verse and say, see, all Israel's not Israel. And you're like, well, I don't, is it that simple? So what have we established so far? And all of these weeks, 
Okay, I think we can summarize it this way. There's a lot of promises. Clearly those promises seem to be to Israel, and clearly they weren't fulfilled. Right? Well, that, yeah, that, that's the, that, that is why it's connected to Romans 9, 10, and 11. That when people are like, why, why is Romans 9, 10, 11 in there? Or I should say, that's why it's connected to uh, Romans chapter 8. Because, yeah, what's the, if, if you just spend uh, Romans 8 talking about God's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, election, what's the purpose of that? And even chapter 8 ends with nothing can separate me from the love of God if you're now going to spend three chapters showing you that God's chosen nation was unchosen and we were chosen in their place and they're done away with, it would destroy Paul's entire argument in the book. That's the thing, what we're trying, we're going to try to make clear. But yes, so we've seen a lot of promises. Let's, I'm just going to give you the scriptures. And I'm just going to give you a brief summary of each section that I've given to you. The first thing we looked at, we looked at numerous Old Testament predictions which treat or speak of a repentance, a restoration of Israel, and eschatological times which is distinct and separate from that which followed the Babylonian captivity. In other words, what is it saying? That we read verses that seem to make a promise of a repentance and a restoration of Israel that had nothing to do with them coming out of Babylonian captivity. What were those passages? Hosea 3, 4 through 5. Ezekiel 37. We looked at the whole chapter, remember? All right? And we looked at everything about that. And that, that, was, that was a very important look. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, I won't even call it a complete study. It was a very important look. Right? Then, secondly, we talked about the perpetuity of the nation of Israel in spite of repeated apostasies and restorations of divine chastening. In other words, we, read, we have a, a group of verses that seem to speak that Israel is going to last for what? Forever. All right. And we looked at Leviticus 26, 44 through 45. Numbers chapter 23, verse 9. We looked at all of Jeremiah 30, did we not? We looked at Jeremiah 46. And we looked at Amos 9 through, or uh, chapter 9, 8 through 11. Right? Remember that? Then, last week, what did we spend all last week on? Who said it? Whoever said it, great. Isaiah, uh, and we, we looked at Isaiah 11, 1 through chapter 12, verse 6, and we, we spoke of it this way, an Old Testament prophecy, which is unmistakable, utterly unambiguous language, which predicts a national restoration of Israel yet in the future. Right? And then we, we talked about everything I won't go through all my notes at that point, right? Then, I think we ended with this last week. Amos 9, 14 through 15, which speaks about what? Okay, well, look, uh, it's open book. You can, yeah, you can go to, uh, anybody need, doesn't remember, go to Amos 9, 14 through 15 really quick. You can look at it really quick. I could tell you, but then you would be just getting robbed from coming to church, you know? I mean, who wants to come to church and someone does all the teaching for you? I mean, that's a crazy idea, right? Okay, I know none, none of y'all sound very committed to our, our approach. Okay, which speaks of their restoration as absolute and permanent. Would you agree that Amos 9, 14 through 15 speaks of an absolute permanent restoration? Now, why is that significant? It, never, it didn't happen, obviously, because they were removed from the land, right? 70 AD, they're no more, right? Until 1948. So clearly it never happened, yes? 
Okay, so those are four. Now, what we're going to do, the next ones are going to be relatively quick. We have, how many more do I have here? You see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have eight more groups of passages of Scripture. Some of them only include one. All right? So, and we're going to get into a lot of New Testament passages. Why is that significant? Yeah, if it's, be, if it's being talked about in the New Testament, unless it's talking about something that already happened, clearly it hasn't happened. Okay, does that make sense? Because in the New Testament era, what's, what happens in the New Testament era? 70 AD, 70 AD, 70 AD, 70 AD. I don't know how many times I have to... I, I, I repeat that over and over and over. Like, what do I say? Every Christian should be an expert on 70 AD. Every Christian should be an expert on 70 AD. You go to any university and you start studying history and they mention 70 AD, all the Christians in the classroom should be like, we got this. You can just sit down. We'll take over from here. But sadly, a secular professor in a university will mention 70 AD and it's the Christian students who know less about it than the atheist students, which is absolutely not even makes any sense to me. What are you doing for church? Oh, Easter egg hunts pancakes in the morning, and pizza parties. Okay, well then, yeah, obviously you're not going to know much about 70 AD, right? Because usually the teenagers at a church having a pizza party are not sitting around talking about 70 AD. Agreed? Unless there's a new video game comes out called 70 AD. Okay, but other than that, they don't care. It's, it's sad. It's just the reality of it. But you can't understand a good portion of your Bible without understanding 70 AD. Right, so, here we go. Everybody ready? Now, Let's just, I, I do have to mention this. I, I should pull up the comment. I get a comment on YouTube. Oh, man. It, 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 it's so weird in, in, in our time that strangers who don't know you, never been to our church, doesn't know anybody who goes to my church, never even speaks to me, hops online to tell me exactly what I do, why I do it, and how I do it. It's a little like, you get a little kind of like, who are you again? I don't know who you are. But it was, I don't even know what message it was, but they tried to tell me that I mentioned my, our, our hermeneutical approach, right? And how would you define our hermeneutical approach in this church? Okay. But what, what's something that's just really, that, and that, that's a common thing. Yeah, that, that's common. But something spe- special we do in this church that other churches don't do. The killing of Fluffy. Right? Okay? So what do I always... What, what, what's the, this is a key element in our hermeneutical approach. What do we always do? Forget everything that we've learned in the past and don't bring it into the present. And I was told that I don't actually do that. Which was somewhat shocking news to me. Isn't it amazing when someone can tell you what you do? Now, they didn't point out in any of the messages where we don't do that, but what are we doing right now? Am I going on what we've studied before? No! We're starting completely over. On uh, Wednesday night, Bobby said something about, like, well, I just can't see the full preterist view in Matthew 24. I'm like, well, I understand that, but we're going to do what? Give it every opportunity once again, even though we've studied Matthew 24 in the past. Am I bringing anything we've studied in the past to the present? 
No, why would I do that? And they're like, that's just ridiculous. That's just, I, would, I wouldn't get rid of all the things I learned in the past. Well, I'm, I'm like, well, congratulations. Do what you want. Why do you care what I do? Like, you know what? Well, like, and don't tell me I don't do that because you, you all hear me say it every single time. Here, we, we're going to be studying this. Do I go, well, we've already studied this in the past. Have we studied the subject of Israel in the past? We spent why, almost six months looking up every verse that uses the word Israel. Am I going with that just saying, hey, Israel's Israel, let's move on? No, I'm stopping and doing what? Throwing it all out and going back through again to rebuild the case. In fact, rebuilding the case, completely different than the way we did it before. So I, it drives me, so is it, and, so, and they're like, I just, they don't understand. Like, I don't know why, does it make sense why we do that? So let me remind you again, why do we do it that way here? I want to make sure we have this down. I'm going to take the time. Right. Here's the thing. I've yet to meet any Christian who's infallible, including me. So therefore, any past conclusion has the potential of being what? Wrong. The only way to come to a new conclusion is to not rely on the past conclusion. So we restudy things like we haven't before so that I can possibly figure out what I may have missed last time. And have you ever noticed me to change things? Never. Has that ever happened in this church? It happens sometimes during a sermon. I'll be like, wait a minute, I was wrong. And I don't care. And sometimes it drives you crazy because sometimes y'all make the joke, so what are we supposed to be believing today? Okay, and I'm like, well, that's your fault, not my fault. Right? Because you're not, you're not supposed to be waiting on me. Okay? But that's what we do. We've studied Matthew 24 and Great detail in the past. Our study of Matthew 24 now, nothing like we've done in the past. And I'm not relying on one thing. I don't rely on my notes. I don't, and, there, and this person just could not understand it. And I'm like, I don't understand what's so complicated. We're not Catholic. We don't have an infallible magisterium saying here's what to believe. We have fallible people who read the Bible and come up with fallible interpretations, including every commentary that we own. So I study it today, and what I figure out today is what I believe, I will defend, and I have to stand on. Yes? But when I study it tomorrow, what do I do with what I did yesterday? It's of no value. When I say that, people just think that's inc- that they're like, you can't do that. You can't. I'm like, and I'm like, I get so tired of people telling me I can't. I can. You don't. We're not Catholic. You don't get to tell me what to do. Isn't that shocking? I mean, like people love the Protestant Reformation, but they love to always tell other churches what they're supposed to do. Have you ever noticed that in the Protestant world? Well, your church can't do that. Your church. When did you become the Pope? Okay, yeah, so I can do it that way. I can, and I will. And if you don't like it, there's nine billion other people to listen to. It's just so weird that people take the time to comment. This is just, I've never heard, I've never heard such. Well, it's, it's okay. Calm down. It'll be fine. 
So that's why we're doing this. Does that make sense? All right. I hope you under, I hope you never forget. Like that's what make, that's a unique part of our hermeneutic. So we'll call this our, the hermeneutical principle of what? Yesterday is useless. Study new today. Now, if we come to the same conclusion as yesterday, that's wonderful, right? Now I've got two studies that confirm the same thing. But the next time we do it, you're going to say, but you've already done this twice. You know what I'm going to tell you? I don't care. We could have all been wrong twice. All right. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes me really popular online. I, I, I don't know why it makes me unpopular. I'm like, why do they care? But all right, here we go. You ready? Ready? All right, go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're in the New Testament now. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. It's just weird that uh, that hermeneutical idea seems so radical to people. I just, I just don't get why. It's like, why is it so bothering to people? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying throw out what you learned yesterday. I'm saying <laughs> I throw out what I learned yesterday. Okay. Matthew 19. All right. Are you ready for this one? I don't even know where we should begin here. Uh, we'll just go to verse 28. You ready? And Jesus said unto them. If you look previous before, it looks like he's referring to the disciples. Right? Peter's talking in verse 27. Agreed? Okay, so he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, or have followed me in the regeneration, there's a comment there, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What's some interesting phrases here? Okay. Well, let's first start with in the regeneration or in the renewal. What's the regeneration? What is the renewal that he's referring to? Those of you who have followed me, comma, so basically, you who are following me, What's going to happen during the regeneration? Now, clearly, what's going to happen during the re- this regeneration he's referring to has to be something that hasn't happened yet, correct? So, well, we could go full-blown spiritualize this, and the regeneration would then be what? S- no, salvation. Okay? And then the 12, tri- the 12, that he talks about 12, over the 12 tribes, that the 12 here is symbolic of the church, and then the church rules and reigns with Christ in a spiritual kingdom. Spiritualize it all. Right? You see that approach? If you don't take that approach, then what do we have to look for? We need some kind of a time of regeneration, yes? See, can we think of any Old Testament things that kind of spoke of a time of regeneration? Ezekiel 37. A time when, like, the lamb will lay down with the lion. Right? That's Isaiah. Okay. All right. All right. Right? 
a time of, of regeneration. Okay? And then what's going to happen? Those who follow him, seeming to speaking of the disciples. Oh, so the Son of Man's going to sit on a throne. They're going to sit on the throne. They're going to rule and reign with him and judge the 12 tribes. Now, you either got to spiritualize that all day or what's literally have to happen. A time of regeneration, Christ sitting on a throne, 12 disciples or apostles are sitting with him and they're judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, this is a bizarre thing to be written in Matthew because not too many years after, they're not good, there's no more 12 tribes. In fact, not only that, well, at that point, they, may, they could have still known the 12 tribes, but most of the tribes went basically gone bye-bye when they went into Assyrian captivity. Yes? Two come out from the Babylonian captivity, and then in 70 AD, what occurs? But what, what's very important is destroyed. All genealogical records, so nobody knows which tribe anybody's a part of. Except for, uh, well, well, the Bible. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, the genealogical record of Christ is kept in the Bible. That's a good point. Okay, so the genealogy in the Bible, but not which tribe someone is a part of specifically, other than Christ. is a very good point. Okay, that's a very good point. But uh, everything other, any other genealogical record that would pertain to Israel was gone. So that makes it very like, so how are they going to have the, you're going to have to have what? A restoration. A restoration of the nation. So you see this verse, I know it's just kind of like weird and out of place, but it raises some serious questions, does it not? Now you can spiritualize it. You can. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 22. There's Matthew 19, 28. How about Luke 22, 28 through 29? I'll look at it as well. Luke 22. All right. Luke 22. This one is not as, well... Well, you can just draw your own conclusions from each one of these. Verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 28. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I know, again, it just seems weird and out of place, does it not? Yeah, 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 ten are not even around. It seems like a weird thing. This is how uh, this could be described. Jesus seems to predict events in the future which presuppose the restoration of Israel to Canaan and the reestablishment of the ancient tribal organization of the nation. And we have this in Matthew 19, 28, Luke 22, 28 through 30. Unless the nation of Israel is to be revived and restored, this prophecy has no meaning at all. Unless you do what with it? Spiritualize it. And, and how do you say it? So basically, what is it? Christians 
will rule and reign over spiritual Israel, I guess. I, I don't even know. Christians rule and reign over the church. I, who are the 12 who's... 12 doesn't mean 12. 12 tribes doesn't mean tribes of Israel. It, it just, I mean, you have to just start reaching, right? And that becomes... What, what's the major issue with doing that? Well, if I go to Matthew and I go to Luke, find a passage in the middle, completely spiritualize it, then what's the danger for the rest of the way I read Matthew and Luke? Why wouldn't I start spiritualizing everything? So then hell, does that really mean hell? Did Jesus really raise from the dead bodily? Right? You see, you can, you can start having some major issues with it. Right? But there's those which... Now, if taken by themselves... Let me make this very clear. If we just took Matthew and Luke by itself, it would be a little perplexing and confusing. Would everyone agree? But when we connect it with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, then it starts getting a different vibe. Would you agree? If taken by itself, I'm the first one to go, mm, I don't know about this. Connected with everything else, I have to be like, uh, well... I'm going to have, now I have to start spiritualizing what? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and I got to be careful I spiritualizing those because many of those have prophecies concerning Christ's first coming, which I believe was fulfilled which way? Literally. All right, you see where the problems develop? All right, let's go to the next one. Go to Luke 21. Luke 21. Does that ring a bell there, Twyla? Yeah, if y'all look here, Twyla went all out on the Olivet Discourse, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. She went page. Right. She went page after page comparing the Olivet Discourse as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and showing all the similarities and all the differences for the, that's part of the Bible study exercise uh, homework this week. And uh, she was the first one to complete it. So, um, yeah. So that's going to be very helpful in our study in the Olivet Discourse. So I don't have to do it. So that's good. All right. All right. I'm joking. All right. Here we go. Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. Okay. And let's go to verse 24. Luke 21, 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Why is that interesting? That, well, I don't know. You could say it's clear. Not everyone agrees it's clear. Okay, so let's just acknowledge not everyone believes it's clear. All right, but what does it seem to be implying? That what's going to happen first? Someone's going to fall by the edge of the sword. They're going to be led captive. They're going to be basically dispersed into all nations. Jerusalem's going to be trodden down by the Gentiles until a, pe- a period of time. Who are the, the, this seems to be referring to who's going to be taken and spread? The Jews. Now, let's look at, this is, this is Luke 21. 
Clearly, this can't be referencing something that happened in the past. This seems to be predicting something that will happen in the future. Okay, well, let's just forget the Bible for a second. I know. Let's just forget the Bible. Right? Go to, go to your uh, college uh, history class. You're going to learn about, oh, wait, 70 A.D. And what happens in 70 A.D.? Well, temple is what? Boom, gone. All of the treasures are taken, right? Trodden down. And what has been the situation really in Jerusalem since then? Did the Jews control Jerusalem? Still trampled down by whom? Right? And yeah, there's a memorial in Rome about, about, about this whole thing, right? Okay, uh, yeah, we, we could get into a whole discussion about all that, but okay, we won't go everywhere with that. But right now, you get the idea. Jerusalem now is still uh, under this situation. But it seems to imply that what? Until there's a time appointed for the Gentiles. And when that time is fulfilled, it seems to imply something's going to change. Not by the Gentiles. Isn't that what seems to be implied? As one source says, in this most important eschatological address, Jesus suggested that a period of Jewish rulership of their ancient city, Jerusalem, would follow on the conclusion of this age, which he called the times of the Gentiles. That, that this is going to happen until that time is fulfilled. Then it, it seems to imply almost that something will revert back. Now, if you throw this out or spiritualize it, I, I don't know what you do at this point. I don't even know what you do at this point. It just become, I, mean, I guess I could pull up Matthew Henry commentary and figure it out, but at this point it would just become, it would, who knows where we would end up. Well, we'll... we'll well, we'll get into more discussion about this when we uh, are working on our Matthew uh, 24. All right? Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to try to finish these today. We're going to try. I know I took a little long talking about our hermeneutical principle, but it's just maddening to tell me someone, tell, for someone to tell me I don't practice what I say. Okay. Acts 1.6. Tell me what you find there. Yeah, this is a pretty important passage. Why is this an important passage? All right, let me, read, let me read this to you. When they, speaking of the disciples, therefore were come together, they asked of him, who, who's him? Jesus, right? You're in church. You always can get it right. Just say Jesus, right? Okay saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Does he say in the next verse, no. Guys, you still don't get it? There is no more Israel. You're Israel. The Gentiles, the church. Does he say that? What does he say? He doesn't deny that he's not, he doesn't deny that he won't do this. He denies that they didn't understand how to interpret the Old Testament. They didn't didn't understand how to interpret the prophecies of Jesus. But we figured it out. They were all too stupid to realize that there was nothing for them. They had lost everything. 
I will argue, tell me if you think I'm crazy. If the Bible we like and things in the Bible we don't like, correct? But they took it literally. Well, they were clearly looking for a literal Messiah, yes. They were looking for a literal kingdom. I'm just saying if they would have been spiritualizing all of it, who knows what they would have been looking for. Oh, yeah, they were still looking for a, mess- a literal Messiah and a literal kingdom. The reason they gave up on Jesus is because he wasn't coming in. Yeah, instead of going to Rome and kicking them out of the government, he went to the temple and kicked them out. And they're like, whoa, you got this backwards. Go kick them out. We're the good guys. And he's like, no, you're not so good. You got to. Romans 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to. Next part. Oh. Now, wait a minute. We connect this back with the time of the Gentiles. Things starting to kind of, starting to fit together a little bit, right? I'm not saying perfectly, but it's starting to fit together. That Israel has done what? They are made what? Blind until what happens? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So in other words, this seems to say Israel is now currently can't see. They can't see what's happening. It's good. They can't see it, right? Okay. Because all the Gentiles are running in. Okay. Well, can't see, can't see, can't see. Okay, and then verse 26, what happens? And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. They're looking for that, and they're looking for it what way? A literal way. What's being quoted in that verse, verse 26? Who can find the cross-reference? Romans 11, verse 26. Someone said Isaiah? Isaiah 59, 20. Does everyone agree that's the cross-reference? Do we have any disagreements? You have ever built every right to be wrong if you want? Go ahead. Right, no. Someone said 59. All right. Someone said verse 20. Verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression, and Jacob saith the Lord. And as for, as for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy mouth, nor of thy seed, nor out of thy mouth, of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth. Well, we know forever doesn't mean forever. Seeming to, what is that seeming to be speaking of? What does that seem to be speaking of? I say a salvation coming to a national salvation coming to Israel. Yes, all, right. all Israel will be. And what, what does the verse go on to say? He, I mean, or it says at the beginning of verse twenty-six, all Israel shall be saved. And what's the next part? Verse twenty-seven. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. He's made a covenant with them. Now, why is this significant? If Romans tells us about the doctrine of election and God has made a covenant with you, then I want to know that God keeps his covenant. Where do I know that God keeps his covenant? 
with Israel. If he keeps the covenant with them, he keeps the covenant with me. Does that make sense? Therefore, Romans 9, 10, and 11 fits in with the overall theme of the book of Romans. Right? Let's go, let's go quickly. We're, we're running out of time. Go to Revelation 11. You've got to put your thinking caps on these. Revelation 11. Thinking caps on. Revelation 11. Everybody there? All right, you guys look at verses 1 through 2 and tell me what you see. I'm not even going to read it. Anyone listening online, you've got to look it up yourself. If you're driving in a car, I'm sorry. Okay. Right. You're going to have to look it up when you get home. But I'm not going to look this one up for anybody. Revelation 11, 1 through 2. Don't start looking at your study notes if you have a study Bible, because first of all, that's illegal in this church, and you will be church disciplined. Okay. Second of all, because I want you to look at what's significant about Revelation 11, 1 through 2. Let's start with verse 1. What happens in verse 1? Oh, there's a measurement of a temple. Stop right here. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary. If we don't get any further, that's okay. It's worth it. If anybody need a Bible dictionary, yell at me. I'll get you one. Anybody need one? Look up, obviously, look up an entry for Revelation. The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Tell me when you find the entry for the book of Revelation. Does anybody need one? I got one right here. Okay. Book of Revelation. That would be in the R's. Okay, 1083, according to Bobby. All right. I want you to look at that entry for the book of Revelation. What do you, what do you think I want you to look up? Do I? When was it written? That's a good idea. When was it written? When was it written? Ninety-five or ninety-six A.D. Does everybody see that? 95, 96 A.D., all right? If you have a study Bible, feel free to look and see what dates they give. Or if you have an introduction, I had another book here somewhere. 80, 81, okay, let's go all the way back to 81, all right? <clears throat> That's 81. Anybody have anything else? Hang on, here it is. Okay. I'll look it up in this one. Okay, here we go. I can find it. All right, Revelation. The apostle, the author and date. Are you ready? 95 AD. Uh, The earliest. Now, Revelation originated during a time of Roman persecution of Christians. Some have suggested the last days of Emperor Nero, which ruled between 54 and 68 AD as the time of composition. Demetrius, yeah. The severity of the persecution as well as the spiritual decline of the church suggests a later date to most scholars. 
The last years of Domitian rule, AD 81-96, are more likely dates of the original book. Now, this is where problems begin to emerge. If we can put it between 54 and 68, what would be significant about that? The temple was still standing. And so many would interpret Revelation as being about what? 70 A.D. Preterism. Remember, preterist, everything has been fulfilled. However, if we cannot date it between 54 and 68, and we get to 80s to 90s, then what happens? Well, 70 A.D. doesn't make any sense anymore because now you're not writing prophecy, you're writing history just in a symbolic way. Okay? Number two, to find a temple standing and being measured in Revelation 11 requires then what? Either A, it's not a real temple, it's a spiritual temple. Correct? Or it's a literal temple that is going to have to be what? Built at some future date for this to be fulfilled. See the problem? What happens with the measure? They measure it. Do they do anything else in verse 2? Oh, they don't measure the court because that's given to the Gentiles, okay? For 42 months. Now, again, you start spiritualizing all kinds of things, right? All right. So that's, that's an interesting verse, right? Most scholars, I just want to make sure you realize, almost everyone puts it later. Very few put it before. Who wants it to be before 70? Preterist. They want it to be before 70. They need it to be. In fact, their system begins to crumble if it's not written before 70 AD. Begins to completely fall apart. Okay, everybody get that? All right, because in many cases, they'll say 666 is a reference to Nero. Becomes a whole host of issues, all right? Uh, Now, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I don't like this, personally. Here's the reason why. If we can't agree on the dating of the book, and the dating of the book is absolutely critical to a hermeneutical approach to the book, that makes interpreting the book extremely questionable and extremely, you just pick and choose. And I hate that. I hate that. Most people think it's later. Yeah, we definitely can say most people think it's later. Very few think it's this early date. I think anything you look up, I mean, how many people got Bibles that have given introduction that gives the dating of uh, the dates? Look in your Bibles. Anybody got a Bible that gives like your introduction to the book? Okay. Well, it may not be a true study Bible. Even basic Bibles will give you an introduction to the book most of the time. Sometimes just a little paragraph tell you the author, who it was written to, when, like gives you the basics, who, what, where, when. Yeah, it's usually at the beginning of your, of the books. Okay, 96. Okay, anybody else got one? Okay. Bobby's looking. 95. 95. Now some of you, you know, because, you know, who knows. What 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 Bibles you're using? But got anything there, Bobby? Um, I don't think 
Okay, that's fine. All right. Okay. Well, most of, so almost every source we find has de- is doing what? It's late 90s, 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 90s. I, I'm even willing to go all the way early as 80s. Okay. But the minute you get past, I mean, you can go 75, 76, 77, 78. I mean, the minute you get past 70 AD, to me, your hermeneutic has to change. No. I would say there's nothing there that would talk about the... the, the. Okay, what? what do, not, see, so every source you're going to get there. I just, I just wanted to be fair. I wanted to be fair because, you know, because I, we, don't, we don't do that here. You know, no, whatever. Well, probably any commentary written from a preterist perspective. Yeah, so I'd have to just start looking for preterist. Now, I, I don't... Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna go they're gonna they're gonna say well it's possible usually what I hear they they say well it's possible it could have been written earlier I mean we cannot completely discount it so like they just kind of throw it it's possible and then immediately interpret the book based off the early like <laughs> but it's also possible that it wasn't. So you can't, you've got it to go with that. All right, we got one more verse. Ah, I wanted to finish all of these, but that's okay. That took a little bit longer. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2. I'm going to try to do two more real fast, all right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 3 and 4 and tell me what happens. This may take up too much of our time, but that's okay. If it does, it does. I have to worry about get, making sure you learn something, not about how fast we get done. So, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, everybody there? And then verse 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, you know what we need to do. Well, there's what some, well, could have happened. We have to see. What do we need to do? When was Second Thessalonians written? Oh, we have a new thing to do. So, See, people are like, why do I need to know when these books were written? Yeah, well, if you care about interpreting the books, you need to know, because in some cases, the dating is absolutely essential. When was 2 Thessalonians written? You look at every source you have available to you. You can ask Siri. You can ask Alexa. You can call a friend. I don't care what you do, okay? All right, 51 AD. 51. 51. 51. Anybody got anything different? Okay. 51. Is everybody going to be in the 50s? I think everyone's going to be in the 50s. You can use the Bible dictionary. It doesn't give one here. You can use that if you want to see if you can find it in there. All right. Anybody else got something different? So far, we're in the 50s. See, this is why this is why we don't trust we don't trust any we 
This is why we have to look up and look up and look up because I don't care what preachers say. I don't care what commentaries say. We've got to look up and look up and look up to verify, verify, verify. And why, why are we looking at multiple sources? See if there's an agreement, right? So 2 Thessalonians, what do we have for a date? Anybody else? So no date in that dictionary. I was mentioning the temple. There's a, you can't group them together. Why not? Completely different periods of time. When it's written in 2 Thessalonians, what's standing? The temple. Now, what could this be making reference to? I know people listening online, they're always like, your church does things so well. I'm sorry, this is the way we're going to do things. Look, you can either sit here and listen to me tell you everything, and then you'll forget it five seconds after you walk out this door. If you look it up, you remember it. I mean, you should all know this, but I'm not going to tell you how much you should have known. Because we've only talked about it 8 billion times, but that's okay. We'll just pretend that you're forgetting everything you knew before, okay? <laughs> See, that's what y'all should say. Whenever y'all don't know an answer, say, well, you told us to forget everything we've learned before, okay? See, I'm, I, I'm trying to help you out. Titus. Titus, yeah, exactly. Titus, 70 AD. All right, you can read all about it. Um, did you read Josephus' description of the destruction of the temple, right? or, or of Jerusalem? Okay, and I, that's what, I was part of the homework for the Bible study exercise. See how all this is coming together? All this is coming together, right? Told everyone to read Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's only, what, four paragraphs long, maybe? Yeah, it's not very long. It's only four paragraphs. Uh, Twyla has it, so you can have Twyla send it to you if you want. Um, I mean, you don't even have to actually p- pick up a physical book in case you have an allergic reaction, okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. It, yeah, yeah, you can download the whole book, but I knew no one would read the whole book, so I, you know, I, I, was, I was very gracious and thought, just read these four paragraphs, okay? But obviously that wasn't a very popular request here either. So, but everyone should read it. So now what do we do with this? This one's not much help. Because I can point to that this being somehow fulfilled where? What? In 70 AD. Okay, right. Does that make sense? Revelation mentioning the temple is a little bit like, mmm. And please note, I don't, see, I don't care about which team I just offended. Okay, we'll end with this. This is, I want to, because I like to give you a practical lesson. If I go, like, I've got an article here that does what with 2 Thessalonians? Groups it with the Revelation passage. And, in fact, let me read exactly what they, way they say. I, what did I do with my glasses? Okay. I don't, I, I don't know what I did with my glasses. Here it is. Because I can't read them without it. Okay. Here we go. This is what they say. The scriptures describes a future time when a temple of God in the Jewish city of Jeru- Jerusalem shall be appropriated by God as his own and misappropriated appropriated by the Antichrist. Well, guess what? They just said it's going to be misappropriated by the Antichrist in the future. And guess what verse they give me? 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. I don't care if I offend that team. I don't care if I offend the reform team. I don't care if I offend the dispensational team. I don't care if I offend the preterist team. I'm not on any of your teams. I don't care about your teams. I don't care if I don't get to participate in your reindeer games. I've never cared about your reindeer games. I don't care. And people who listen always get confused. Like, well, I thought you thought this. Because you think you want me to be defined as a team. I'm not on your team. What team am I on? What's the truth? 
So, would it be great if I could prove that 2 Thessalonians was written after 70 AD? That would be awesome, yes? I'd be like, I've got Revelation. i got 2 Thessalonians. They both mention a temple. They were both written after the destruction of the temple. Therefore, both point to a future temple. See, this is why I said studying. This is why we don't study uh, anything the way most people do. A lot of people would study prophecy by saying, preterists are wrong, these are wrong, and here's the side that's right, and then just study it from that perspective. You need all of the perspectives because the preterists are very helpful here, right? Because they so emphasize 70 AD that that knowledge allows me to do what? That's why the first time we studied Matthew 24, I studied it from a preterist perspective. Because now that made us never forget 70 A.D. Well, this is important here. Because now that we know 70 A.D., I can look at 2 Thessalonians and go, well, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't pointing to something future. Because 70 A.D. has to at least be taken into consideration, yes? Because someone's going to desecrate that temple. Someone's going to destroy it. So then, it can, I, if you want to say it has a future implication, you can make that argument, but you've got to at least say, 70 AD, something happened. Does that make sense? And if you're going to shoot for something future, you're stuck. That's why, that's why we do this. We have to consider all the perspectives. Right? That's why sometimes I, I was having people grab the Matthew Henry commentary and read it, because I was like, I want you to see what Matthew Henry does with this verse, because he's going to tell you it's the church. I want you to know that. I'm not, I'm not afraid of keeping that from you, because then we can take it all together and go, okay, so where do we end up with this? Okay, where do we end up with this? Just like with Matthew 24. I, okay, let's pretend that it's future. Does that? Remember, we always take, we agree with the perspective and do what? Follow it and end up with logical conclusion. Well, the dating of 2 Thessalonians changes everything. I wish, it was seven, I wish it was after 70 AD. It would make it easy for me. Here's two verses that mention a temple after the temple was destroyed. Therefore, the New Testament calls for a new temple. 2 Thessalonians doesn't work. Revelation does. Does that make sense? All right, we'll have to stop there. We didn't get near as far as we, well, now next week is going to be a mess because we only have like a couple of verses. We only have a couple of verses to look at now. I hate when I, so, well, you know, five or ten minutes, you know. Okay. I mean, you know, it takes me at least 12 verses to get to a 30-minute sermon. Okay. Right? Okay. All right. Now, now you're now you're lying, okay, and bearing false witness, Okay. I'm going to have to preach on the Ten Commandments again. All right, Here we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Such an important concept, not only about hermeneutics, but just why we have to check and verify and double check and not just listen to any one side. What we care about is figuring out exactly what promises were made to Israel, what promises have not been fulfilled, which ones we look for a future fulfillment so that we can have a better understanding of exactly what you're telling us in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Help us continue to remember all of this stuff, but check everything so that we are not deceived by any claims put forth in Christian books, but that we can try to find what your word actually says. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,